this week on the Back Table Podcast. These are so fun, though. Like, you know, yes, there's, you know, potential for complications, but these are like some of my happiest patients. And it is so rewarding to be able to have a patient like come into the office. And if you can just like fix it in the office and then they like walk out and they're like, all right. And you see them back and they're like, yeah, it's better. Like, you're awesome. Thank you. And you're like, yeah, like it's just a, it's a win and it feels good. And then, you know, you, you never really see them again because I assume they're, they're good. off living their <laughs> best life and doing well. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's just, um, it's different than some of your other patients that, you know, you're managing long-term and they can be really fun, especially when you're taking out like a big, you know, five Short centimeter Short dinosaur fossil. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with a hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Cook Medical's otolaryngology head and neck surgery clinical specialty strives to provide otolaryngologists with minimally invasive solutions to address unmet needs. Areas of focus include head and neck, otology, and laryngology, with products ranging from a full suite of interventional silendoscopy products and the Doppler blood flow monitoring system to the BioDesign otologic repair graft and the Hercules 100 transnasal esophageal balloon. For more information, visit cookmedical.com forward slash otolaryngology. Now, back to the show. My name is Gopi Shah. I'm a pediatric ENT, and I'm here with, I always say you're going to introduce yourself, and then I'm always like, it's okay. and my partner in crime, Ashley Ahan. <laughs> I never let you introduce yourself I properly. Love I love being your partner in crime. <laughs> I always get so excited. <laughs> and I'm Ashley Ahan. I'm a general ENT, and I'm here today with, with my bestie, Gopi Shah, Sunday morning, just um, talking about stones today. Yeah. So we're going to talk about in-office management of stones. Uh, for our listeners, we had an amazing in-depth silendoscopy podcast, episode 25 with Dr. David Cognetti. And just to kind of do a little offshoot, I thought it would be fun to talk about in-office management. You see patients in your office where uh, you manage if it's right there or something you need to do in the office. Uh, you do that pretty frequently, yes? Yeah, it's it's not infrequent that patients come in with a uh, salivary stone and possibly there is a, a an office type of procedure that could help that's worth discussing sometimes. So it's nice to have that in your back pocket to be able to offer to patients. So before we kind of get into the nuts and bolts of the actual management in office, um, and I know we did a very in-depth discussion with Dr. Cognetti, um, just for a you know, quick review, how do these patients usually present to you? And uh, what are some of the questions that you ask every time that's always on your checklist of stuff? So most of the time, patients have been seen by their primary care doctor or in the ER and someone has already made the diagnosis that they have a stone, that's probably maybe 80% of the time, 80 to 90%. So most of the time, um, someone's gotten a CT and there's a stone there. And so like the the chief complaint on my schedule will say, you know, salathiasis or salivary stone or something like that. The important things that I'm asking them about are, you know, what, what kind of issues is this stone actually causing? Um, so, you know, patients will say that when they eat 
Um, sometimes they'll get some pain and swelling of the gland um, that, you know, persists during their meal and maybe lasts, you know, 30 minutes to an hour afterwards and will kind of slowly go down on its own. Sometimes there will be a history of like a really bad sialadenitis that had to be treated with antibiotics. Um, and maybe that was the, the first thing that made them notice that the, there was um, something going on there. Um, and sometimes it's incidental. So sometimes I have patients who got a scan for something else, you know, completely different, and there happens to be a stone there. And when I say, you know, do you have pain when you eat? Have you ever had a salivary gland infection? Do you, you know, anything? And it's like, nope, nope, nope. So I think it's really important to know that salivary stones are pretty benign disease. They're, they're not going to turn into cancer. They can certainly cause a lot of symptoms. They can cause, you know, people to have recurrent infections. They can cause pain when you eat. But if they aren't causing symptoms and a patient is really trying to avoid surgical intervention, that's pretty reasonable to have that discussion. And, you know, sometimes patients just want it out because there's a concern that maybe someday it will cause symptoms, which I think is reasonable as well. But that's where that shared decision making um, comes in. So usually you said they have a CT. Is an ultrasound common as well when they come to you? Or do you usually have something that you can look at more with the anatomy? Yeah, that's a good question. CT is way more common, but, um, but I think ultrasound is helpful. And sometimes, you know, if I'm seeing the patient first and I have that suspicion, I may get an ultrasound um, because it does allow you to see perhaps, you know, like a dilated duct behind the stone you know, you're able to see the anatomy of the, the salivary glands and, you know, the shadow of the stone. So if you can't get a CT for some reason, or maybe, you know, the patient is really worried about their radiation exposure and they would prefer an ultrasound, I think ultrasound is great at looking at salivary gland pathology. You know, I know we're kind of talking about the gland and the duct. Um, would you say that we're talking about pretty much the submandibular gland and submandibular duct? Yes. Or is it common that you see parotid stones? Yeah, they'll, there's um, some parotid stones that'll come in too. I would say as far as being able to do things in the office, it's far more common that that's in the um, submandibular gland and duct. I have maybe seen a handful of patients that have a stone that's literally right at the, you know, distal parotid duct where it's like, almost in the mouth. Like if it's right there, you know, I, I don't, I think that's reasonable to, you know, go after that in the office if they would like it. But a lot of times the parotid ones will present maybe a little, you know, out of reach. And those would tend to start talking about endoscopy more um, to be able to kind of see and get back there um, better. But it just depends. But I would say you're right. Mo most of them, vast majority are submandibular. Okay. So tell me about your exam. What are you looking for? Is there any specific tips or tricks about the palpation that you do? Yeah, so I will, I'm always wearing my loops with a headlight um, so that I can um, really, you know, examine the, the punctum and be able to see if saliva is kind of flowing out from there. So I, a lot of times I will kind of, you know, if, if you're looking in the floor of the mouth, I'll dry up the mucosa with like a piece of gauze so that it's easier to see if you're able to get saliva to flow, right? I'll have the patient push their tongue to the roof of their mouth because that, that kind of brings everything up. And then I will massage the, the gland in question first to see if anything comes out. And sometimes 
you can still get some normal salivary flow from a side that has a stone because sometimes the stone has gotten so big that it dilates the duct a little bit and, you know, you can get some saliva to kind of squeak around it. Sometimes it might look, you know, cloudy or, you know, milky or yellow because maybe there is some chronic infection going on. Sometimes there's nothing that comes out. And then sometimes, you know, you do that and then the stone, if it's moving within the duct, sometimes it'll just like come right up to the, you know, to that distal duct, you know, at the punctum and it kind of just sits right up there for you. And you're like, oh, hello, like there, there you are. There, that's it. <laughs> and then I'll do the other side too, just to kind of, you know, as a comparison to see what the, the salivary flow is on that side. And I'll do the parotids as well. I usually do all four just as a part of my kind of normal routine looking around. And then I always palpate. So I'll do like a bimanual palpation where there's one finger in the floor of the mouth and the other hand is on the outside, uh, kind of pushing the gland up towards you. And for, I mean, most stones, you you should be able to feel it. I, you know, unless it's very small, you know, if it's only, you know, one or two millimeters, you might not feel it. But um it's usually palpable. Even the ones that are like stuck back at the hilum of the gland, you know, in that very proximal duct, if you push the gland up towards you and you, you know, kind of slide your finger all the way back, usually you can feel that stone. And so uh, I think that's helpful for me in assessing the likelihood of being able to take it out transoral. You know, if it's kind of fixed at a certain spot and I can feel it really well and access it, then I feel a lot more confident about being able to get it out through the mouth. If it's really far back and really big, that may not be possible. If it's moving around, that obviously makes it a lot more challenging. So it kind of helps me get a get a, a lay of the land and assess um, what, what we're dealing with, what the possibilities are. The other thing is just assessing how well the patient can tolerate your having your hands in their mouth because <laughs> some people immediately are gagging and, you know, you're, they're not, they're just, it, they just, it's just their gag reflex is too sensitive or they just can't really tolerate it. That's probably not going to be a great office um, procedure candidate. And I feel like the position of the inferior, like the lower teeth, if they're towards, if they're facing towards the tongue, like you just don't have enough room, I feel like, to Yeah. That can make the exam and even finding the punctum difficult. Yeah. Or mandibular tori. Oh, yeah. That can really make it challenging. I remember um, an, uh, a patient, um, she was probably in her 80s, um, who had really prominent mandibular tori um, and was really trying to avoid going to the operating room. And we were able to get it done, but it was it was a lot more challenging than than my other patients. So yeah, that's a that's a really good exam consideration of just being able to like and and for you know with mandibular tori, that's going to make it hard whether they're in the office or in the OR because it's just kind of this fixed the same anatomy. Yeah, it's not going it's anywhere. Just there. <laughs> can't can't <laughs> shave those down. Um. <laughs> Okay, so if uh, the ideal stone is going to be the one that's not moving around, that's not that proximal, if you will, that's a little bit more distal, closer to the duct, that's pretty consistent when you feel it and you can feel it pretty good. And it's going to feel hard between Mm -hmm. your hands, not like a fullness or, you know, it's going to feel hard. It's obvious. Yeah. Yeah, I would say and the, the chip shots, the ones that are really easy are the ones that are right there at the punctum and... You can almost it's it's almost like you see it already. <laughs> it's like it's like it just needs 
like just a little, you know, the, the duct just needs to be open just a little bit and it's going to slide out on its own. Um, it's, it's almost, you know, the, the body is delivering it to you. Those are, those are the easy, easy ones. Um, but most of them might be, yeah, like in that, you know, distal third um, of the duct so that they're, they're, you know, accessible, they're palpable, they're not really sliding around on you. Um, those are going to be easier to go after. So what about the patient that uh, doesn't come in with any imaging? They have the classic history of when they eat, after they eat, they have swelling and pain. And, you know, you do your exam and you feel a stone. Do you have to get an ultrasound or imaging or can you, and let's say it's that classic where, you know, it, it's, you don't, maybe it's not crowning if you will, you're not seeing it, <laughs> but like you can feel it, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Do you, can you um, offer something right away or do you, how important, like, do you have to, if you feel like, hey, the history fits, the physical fits, and I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Right. Yeah. If, if I am 99% sure that that's it, I will talk to the patient about just, you know, going straight to a silithotomy, silidocoplasty, just removing the stone through the floor. You know, I've had patients who have, you know, a high deductible plan and they, they know it's going to cost them a lot of money to get a CT and it may not change what we do. And so they're just, you know, kind of twisting my arm to be like, can't we just, you know, it's right there. Like, can we just do this? And so I, I think it's reasonable. The, the big things that I talk to patients about is because we don't have the CT ahead of time, there may be surprises, right? So, you know, we, I, I may not be able to get it out. There may be other stones behind it. So ultimately, we may need to get some sort of imaging or, you know, a CT or an ultrasound um, beforehand. I think an ultrasound is a good alternative to CT. I like having something before I go into any sort of procedure. That, that would be my preference, you know, is to have um, a CT going into it. But, um, you know, the other thing about CT sometimes is dental artifact. And so if they have a bunch of dental work that is creating artifact on the CT, sometimes the CT won't show the stone. Um, so sometimes it's not even helpful. Um, and so I think it's one of those things that you talk about and you want to be as prepared as possible before you're doing any sort of procedure. But also, you know, if you're physical, I mean, you, you can also trust your, your history and your physical exam. And sometimes you can make the patient better that day and, and never have to do, you know, the, the imaging workup and it's, and you're done. So it's one of those things that we, we talk about and, you know, it's, it's an option. I don't think it's a, a crazy thing to consider doing that, especially with the, like the real small ones that are um, about to kind of come out on their own. You know, you, you take it out in clinic real quick, you show the patient, you're like, Oh, look, there it is. And they're like, that God. little thing, <laughs> that's what's been causing me all this pain and agony when I eat, and, you know. So, I mean, it's very, they're so, they're really happy patients. So it's really nice to be able to help them on the spot and make them feel better like that day. But I think, you know, it, get, having a little bit more information is not a bad thing. So what about, you'd mentioned, okay, you're going to express the gland to see what, if you can get anything out of the duct. And, you know, sometimes you get saliva, sometimes you don't. What about the patient? You feel stone and you get milky 
turbid looking fluid or pus. Mm-hmm. Do you cool it down and then address it? Or do you do you address it that day? What are your thoughts on that when it's sort of maybe on the not quite infected unless there's, you know, maybe it is it's about to pus or, you know, maybe it's kind of inflamed. It's, you know, it's hard. The gland is hard, uh, but you feel a stone. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I wouldn't necessarily say that that's a contraindication to doing a silothotomy that day. But when things are infected and there's more inflammation, you have to be prepared that there might be more bleeding and um, that it may not be, you know, as clean and nice and easy as it is, you know, when it's cooled down. Um, And so I think you know, my preference would be to, you know, send them home on some antibiotics and maybe cool things down, get some imaging in the meantime if they haven't had it, and then maybe come back, you know, in a week or two and and kind of schedule it that way, which typically, you know, our billing team prefers for us to give them a week or two for pre-authorization and things like that. So um, sometimes that is kind of the perfect um, sequence of events to kind of like see, assess, have a plan, come back and do the intervention. But sometimes patients have driven like four or five hours to see me and it's just doesn't make sense to send them home on antibiotics and make them drive all the way back for something that potentially could be taken care of that day. So again, it's one of those <laughs> gray areas where um, you know, we, we talk about it and depending on if I think it's really going to be difficult, like if it's a little more posterior and, um, you know, maybe they're having a lot of pain with it too. And, um, and we're, you know, there's a lot of pus coming out. Like I might just say like, you know what, like, let's just, let's start with some antibiotics, especially if it's their first time, you know, sometimes that stone has been there for a while and this is the first you know, silodenitis that they've ever had, maybe just treat it, especially if they're like maybe older and more frail and maybe they're on, you know, more than one blood thinner and it's going to be a little less straightforward, a little more challenging, a little more risky, these types of things. You might be able to say, hey, like, let's treat this infection. This is the acute thing that's happening right now. Maybe this stone has been there for a while and hasn't been causing you issues. And let's see what happens. Maybe the stone will continue to cause you recurrent infections henceforth, or maybe, you know, you were a little dehydrated or you, who knows, like for, for whatever reason, you had an episode of an, of uh, salivary gland infection and, and once we treat it, maybe that will be the end. It's, it's hard to know. So again, depending on the patient, I think it's reason you could argue either way. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I mean, I think for anything we do, right, I think that's sort of not like the conservative, you know, maximal medical management is always an option. And patients are usually happy with a little extra time to kind of understand the disease process and what's going on and, you know, feeling like they've tried some other things as well. And like you said, if you can avoid something, avoid like, you know, a procedure, I feel like you're never going to. Yeah, there's there's nothing without complications. But but I do if I if we decide like some sort of non-procedural management, I do follow them closely. If we're just going to do antibiotics and wait and watch, then I make sure that they come back and see me probably within three or four weeks so we can kind of see how things are going. And I and I give them strict kind of ER precautions of like, you know, if this gets bad, then don't sit on it. You know, if we need to do IV antibiotics or something worse, then, you know, let me know. Because sometimes it can be like a, a situation where, 
you know, that stone is just kind of not allowing any sort of um, egress of that infection and it needs to, we need to remove the stone for things to finally kind of get better. Yeah, that's a good point as well. Um, for your antibiotics, uh, what do you usually like to prescribe for somebody that has no allergies? <laughs> yeah, I usually do Augmentin if there's no allergies and clindamycin if they're um, allergic to penicillins. Do you think it matters? Seven days, 10 days? Mm. <laughs> I um, I will usually do 10 days of Augmentin. So let's say you do have the candidate. So the person that, you know, has the mandibular, the stone, you know, maybe it's not right at the duct, but you can feel it pretty well and it's not moving around on you and you can feel it and you have the imaging that you need. The stone is the stone. Then what? What, what do you how do you kind of set them up? Yeah. Like, you know, so, like, yeah, let's say like they're like, let's do it. I, I want to get it out. You know, let's let's take care of the problem. I need to move past this. Right. So and and if it is kind of the right size and location to consider just taking it out in the office, I will typically use, you know, I'll do salathotomy. I don't have solendoscopy scopes in my clinic. Um, and so if, if we're doing anything in the office, that's what I'm referring to is doing salathotomy. So opening the duct, salidocoplasty to kind of formalize that opening. If they really want salendoscopy, um, because I mean, if it's, if it's borderline and maybe it is a little further back, um, or if they just are like, ah, I'm squeamish about the idea of, you know, an office procedure, you know, then then we kind of might lean more towards salendoscopy and talking about that. Um, and depending on the size and location, again, it still may end up being a silothotomy in the OR um, if we can't get it with the scope. But um, if we're going to the OR, I do tend to almost always tell them that we'll at least try to, you know, do what we can with silendoscopy. But you know, that, that's another podcast. We, we, we don't, uh, we're not going to talk about it today. Check out episode 25 <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and we'll try to get Dr. Dave Cognetti back on the show. <laughs> Follow up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, man. so if we're, you know, back to this patient that is like, all right, I'm here. Let's, let's do this in the office. I, I don't mind, you know, I'm going to be able to hold still. I'm going to be able to tolerate the feeling things or whatnot. Right. Is your chair upright, flat? I lay them down flat. You lay them flat, okay? Yeah, do you do a shoulder I kind roll? Of, I do like okay. um, like when you're at the dentist. You know, you're yeah. laying all the way back, and I sit in a chair, like at the head, to and I kind of you know will like have them turn their head towards me. I'm usually on the right side of the patient, regardless of where the stone is, and I think that's just because I'm right-handed. And so it makes, for me, it makes sense with my right hand kind of coming into the mouth from that side. I don't know, but I'm, I'm usually patients laid back and I'm sitting in a chair kind of at the head. And then I'll have uh, my assistant on the other side with, you know, suction or being able to hand me things. Right. So do you numb them up with anything? Meaning, I know we had this conversation on episode 25, which I keep referring to. Because um, I remember when I was a PG by four and I injected the floor of the mouth to try to numb everything up. And all of a sudden we couldn't feel anything or find the papilla. So yeah, um, I didn't know. Do you ever You're do having a flashback? A major flashback. Major flashback. Um, and so I didn't know, do you ever do hurricane spray on top or gels or anything? Or is that distort as well? Yeah. So I will typically, I might put a little bit of hurricane spray on some gauze and then put that in the floor of the mouth over it. 
Um, Because I feel like if you just spray the floor of mouth, it just kind of goes everywhere, right? Like, and so I'm trying to just kind of like anesthetize that spot. I don't know if that does anything, to be honest, because the lidocaine stings, you know, anyway. But I I mean, especially if you have someone that might be a little bit squeamish with needles. I mean, it does kind of take that edge off as far as like feeling the poke of the needle. Um, But but you do you do have to inject local, Um, but you inject very small amounts so that you don't distort things, right? And since I'm not cannulating the duct, that's less important than when you're thinking about solendoscopy in the OR. And I'm just trying to put just a little bit of local right on top of that stone where I'm going to make that incision. But I have to make sure that I'm not injecting so much that suddenly I can't feel the stone anymore because that that's... Yeah, that's problematic. <laughs> that's going to make it really yes. hard. So I recall that problem <laughs> very well, actually. <laughs> I still remember it. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, so, goodness. so yeah, it's just I'll use like a little one cc syringe with like a little half inch, like 30 gauge needle, just a little tiny. And I'll just poke right on top of the stone and do just a little dollop, a little tiny bit of local, I'll use like 1% lidocaine with epi. And then I will have the patient kind of push their tongue up to the roof of their mouth. Um, And I will let them know, you know, I want you to do your best because they're going to be like moving their tongue the whole time because people, you you have a hard time, like you, you know, your tongue just moves around sometimes, right? Especially when someone's telling you to stop moving your tongue. (laughs) So I'll just give them something that I'm just like, push your tongue to the roof of your mouth. And what that tends to do is it keeps their tongue from wiggling around. And it also kind of brings the floor of the mouth up towards you. Hmm. I like that trick. Yeah. And and then I will use like a brown adsen or, you know, maybe a small hemostat, like a little mosquito to kind of grab the stone so that it's, you know, through the mucosa kind of gently just kind of so that you know where it is because you can you feel it with your finger. But then as soon as you're not feeling it with your finger, when you look, it's it usually is hard to see again, unless unless it's right there at the punctum, you're, you're like it's, you know, somewhere in there. And so by feeling it and grabbing it, it kind of lets you see exactly where it is, right? And then I'll take an 11 blade um, and I'll just go right down on top of the stone until I can feel it, you know, because you'll feel yourself hit the stone with the tip of the blade. And then I'll just, you know, make a small little incision right on the top of the stone. And then I'll keep holding the stone and I'll take either some um, like a codman or mosquito with my other hand and kind of spread that area. And a lot of times the stone will just kind of pop out, followed by, you know, the egress of, you know, the saliva and, you know, all the you know, or pus or whatever's behind it will kind of like all start shooting out. It's nice to kind of have a handle on the stone because if it slips, then it kind of just, you might just lose it in their mouth, <laughs> especially like, if it's small. <laughs> they may swallow it. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, be be prepared for that. Um, and if it's also, it's also, if it's very small, it's easy for your assistant to get it up in the the suction too. So, um, be careful of that. Um, but I tend to, you know, I like to be able to grab it so that I can kind of show the patient, you know, here's what it is. And, um, does that make sense as far as that? Yeah. To that point? Absolutely. So have you ever had a time where you thought you were grabbing it and cut down and yeah, 
it's not the stone. And, and then what do you do? Yeah, you're like, you know, you know, poking with your 11 blade and you're not feeling it. And you're like, huh, where'd it go? And I've had times where it maybe it slides back. Mm. Um, and so I will have the patients eat like a lemon drop or a lemon wedge or sour candy or something. And that'll kind of push it back up. Mm. I've, I've tried that trick before and it works pretty well to kind of like bring it back towards the front. So they're in your office. You kind of sit them back or have them laying down wherever they're comfortable to suck on a lemon candy or something. And then you feel it and then you can milk it out. And then, yeah. Is that kind of what? Well, I mean, like if I've successfully made a silothotomy, like if the duct is open and you're massaging the gland. Yeah. It should come out. Come out. Yeah. If it's not, then you haven't opened up the duct yet. And sometimes there's a little more tissue there than you think there's going to be. You know, because you feel it and you're like, it's just right there. And especially if it's in kind of that middle third of the of the duct, um, it may be a little deeper. And and after you've injected a little bit of local, there's, you know, that's going to make it a little thicker too. That little space. Yeah. And so, you know, it may be a little deeper than you think. But if I think the key is being able to grab the stone and stabilize and be like, okay, this is where it is. Because if not, then you're kind of you know, blindly yeah. poking around and it's, yeah, you're, it's easy to just kind of like, it's cause it's so small. It's easy to just kind of be poking around it. Yeah. And do you feel like there's a certain, uh, size incision, uh, length that, you know, don't, if it's smaller than this, nothing's going to come out. Right. And can you ever go too long or too, you know, after the stone is out and you, you know, you've massaged everything out, you've, you know, done a little bit of minor, um, like kind of irrigation through there, you're going to do the um, salidocoplasty part where you're uh, kind of formalizing that opening. And the bigger it is, the easier it is for that part. And so I tend to err on the side of larger because it's probably going to stenose down. And so my preference would be to open it up, you know, at least a centimeter, even even if the stone is only, you know, five millimeters or something like that, because I feel like it gives me space to work because it's a lot harder to formalize an opening that's only half a centimeter. You're going to like end up ripping me. It's, it's just, too, it's hard. It's going to look like dog meat. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, and it's not necessary to like, no. it's from a physiology standpoint, you know, the saliva just needs to flow into the mouth and at least from when I think about it, I haven't had any patients that um, have noted any difference of the saliva coming out through this new opening versus how it used to come out all the way, you know, through the punctum at the end. So I don't think it matters. Um, I, I would just make like a nice opening. And if it's a little bit bigger than the punctum, then, you know, if they develop another stone, maybe it'll pass easily on its own. I, and I've never had people like get, it always kind of, stenosis down um you know so i've never had it be so big that like food's gonna fall into it or anything weird like that right Um, right. even with really large stones are there landmarks in the mouth that you use to say hey this is just too posterior um because we have to worry about the lingual nerve the further back we go right it's more superficial so do you have landmarks yeah i mean if it's really far back if i'm if i'm palpating and i'm really like my entire almost my entire hand is in their mouth you know to be able to feel the stone way in the back that's just not going to be a good candidate to do in the office um because you need to be able to see what you're doing 
And so usually I'll tell them, eh, you're just not going to be a, um, a good candidate to do in the office. I mean, and I'll, I'll make sure we have imaging on those patients. You know, CT scan would be nice to kind of know if the stone is in the duct or if it's more in the gland um, to kind of have that discussion of the likelihood of being able to take the stone out without taking the whole gland. But when it's really far back there, you do have to have that discussion of like, well, you might just have to lose your whole gland. But people are very sensitive about having an incision on the neck um, and the risks that go along with that. And so even though it can be a lot more technically challenging to take it out through the mouth when you're dealing with the stone that's super posterior, I think in a patient's mind, it's like, oh, but it's, you know, it's coming out through the mouth. Like it's, there won't be an incision out here. It's, you know, it doesn't mean it's impossible to take out through the mouth, but it means that for me in my hands, I don't want to try to do this in the office. Yeah. We might be one of the OR for <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> we might. Yeah. It's just, it, even, even when it's in the, the middle third, that can be really challenging in the office. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, my preference for the ones in the office would be the ones that are right at that distal third where you're just kind of they're they're already almost out and you're just kind of helping them come out like those are the nice chip shots <laughs> yeah yeah the, even in the middle third it can they can be challenging do you um irrigate after let's say the stone comes out are you washing anything out how much saline what do you use yeah i'll usually do a little bit of irrigation nothing crazy um yeah because they're uh, awake <laughs> yeah you can't like you're not drown getting the bl- them. Blue <laughs> like i um i will use my um little disposable ear suctions you know like mm. the like a yeah. like either like a she's like a size three or five like real small yeah. and i'll kind of um use like some saline bullets and kind of, you know, do a little, you know, flush, flush, flush with but basically you're using, you know, drops, <laughs> like it's a very yeah. small volume. And then I'll use my little ear suction and kind of suction in the lumen of the duct mm. to kind of make sure that they've kind of like gotten everything. Um, and sometimes I'll use the the suction to just kind of gently probe in there as well and see if there's anything else. Because when you, you know, when that metal touches a stone, I don't know, I feel like that's not as common. Usually I'm just kind of like suctioning and then you see that flow of saliva that's kind of like, you know, that that backlog of saliva that needs to come out. And then you're like, okay, this is, this is good. That's like a positive sign for me to kind of see all that flowing out. And sometimes it comes out kind of under pressure as soon as that stone is out of the way. It's like, you're like, all right, nice. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, do you ever use, you know, in the OR, we irrigate sometimes with Kenalog and, um, or steroid. Do you do that in the office? Is there, is that necessary? Not usually. Yeah. For, for just a simple stone, I usually don't. Um, I have done that for like patients who have, you know, who were suspecting have some sort of chronic saladenitis without stones, maybe some sort of autoimmune or something that's like causing some sort of ductal stenosis or something weird like that. I might, we might, I might offer that as an option, but if it's a stone, then I'm usually like, we just need to take the stone out and just let it heal. Yeah. And then you do do formal sialodocoplasty? Yeah. Almost always we'll, we'll throw some sutures. I will use a forochromic suture. I like, I have some little like Castro Viejo, like needle drivers that work well for just kind of like sewing in the mouth with a patient who's awake to do each side of that opening to, you know, basically sew that 
mucosa of the duct to the oral mucosa um, so that it's kind of created a, a formal new opening. Do you think it matters, though? Like, let's say at that point, the patient is just done and you're not going to get a suture in. Right. Can you watch them? Yeah. Or do you feel like... Yeah. I feel like the sialidocoplasty is controversial of whether you have to, don't have to, like, I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm just a, asking. That's, no, that's a good question. I try to get in at least one suture. If it's, <laughs> I mean, if it's... if I guess it depends on the size of the incision as well. If it's bigger... I'm a little less worried about it completely stenosing and scarring together, but I'm still worried. I'm always worried. <laughs> yeah. Um, those are, I mean, they're <laughs> difficult patients. And if it, you know, if there are complications, they're not easy ones to manage being strictures and, yeah. you know, things like that. A recurrent stone happens. That's not uncommon. And even that, you know, having to manage that again and something that's already been manipulated mm -hmm. is not easy. Oh, so. yeah, for sure. Yeah, because you're, you're basically changing the anatomy of the duct kind of forever. Yeah. And so... I really try hard to make sure that I'm at least getting a suture on each side just to try to, you know, hold that open. But you're right. Sometimes it's, I mean, that's probably the hardest part is being able to to do that, especially in the awake patient because they're now they've, depending on how long it took to, you know, get the stone out, now they're, you know, still sitting there with their mouth open and they're getting a little antsy and their tongue's moving around. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe your local like is in the area. You know what I mean? Because we're making a tiny bleb or, you know, on top of the stone, but where you're putting your sutures may be beyond the borders of that stone too. So yeah, that's they true. may be feeling more. Yeah. And sometimes, yeah, you might have to come back and do a little bit, you know, if they're like, oh, like I'm feeling that you might come back and put a little bit more local around your um, silothotomy. I think the other thing that can be really tricky, especially if there's bleeding. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's hard, you know, to tell what is the lumen of the duct and what's, you know, just the soft tissue in the floor of mouth. And I mean, loops are extremely helpful. You know, I feel like, you know, you kind of have Superman vision when you have your loops on. I don't know if I could do it without loops um, to be able to know, you know, exactly what tissue you're trying to sew to what. But yeah, that can be, you know, really challenging. And I would, you know, I don't know if you're if you're not sure and you get a little disoriented and it's bleeding, it might be better to just, just not call it. Yeah, yeah because it. you might make it worse if you're you're sewing tissue to other tissue that's not what you think you're doing <laughs> it's like the stay sutures on a trach we label them for yeah, a reason yeah because <laughs> yeah, like, you can very easily <laughs> close that opening. yeah yeah it's it's um yeah so it can get really tricky and and speaking of bleeding we talked about kind of patient selection another discussion to be had you know patients who are on blood thinners again if it's that tiny stone that's already at the punctum and you just kind of need to, you know, make a little nick to open things up and it comes out easily. You may not need to come off of your blood thinner for that. But everything else, I'll usually say, hey, we need to see if it's safe for you to come off your blood thinner for this because that's going to make it a lot easier for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and avoid Which, <laughs> the potential floor of mouth hematoma. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's just, it's going to be easier for me and better for you, <laughs> better outcomes for you. If we, if I can see what I'm doing and usually they're like, okay, yeah, that sounds, that's good. That sounds good. I want you to be able to see what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. 
That's, that's important. <laughs> so, okay. So let's say the procedure goes and, you know, the stone comes out or let's say, do you feel like you ever have situations where maybe the stone doesn't come out, but you've made a big opening, you got some milk out, like, you know, milky saliva out. Do you feel successful in those as well? I mean, at least if anything, they can still massage the gland and continue to express. And if it's small enough, uh, it may still come out or... How do you feel about that? Let's see. I mean, if I haven't gotten the stone out, no, I don't feel <laughs> successful at all. Isn't the glass always half full? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, like if I haven't had this, you know, knock, knock on wood, I have not had this happen yet where um, we, we have to, you know, abort and end without getting the stone out. But um, if that happened, then I would probably have that discussion about like, we may need to go to the operating room to do this or depending on what the reason was for not being able to get it, you know? I mean, if it's small, sure, there's a chance that maybe it's just too wiggly. Maybe it was moving and, you know, went back into the gland and once they, you know, massage it a little bit, it might slip out. So that's that's certainly possible. I've had that happen with um, patients like in the operating room where we, we do sal endoscopy, we can't reach the stone, we do a little bit of a salathotomy, salodogoplasty, just kind of at the punctum just to make it a little bit bigger because we've kind of dilated a little bit with the scope. And and then later the patient tells me, oh yeah, like afterwards I, I felt the stone come out, you know, I massaged it and it came out in my mouth. So sure, I think that happens and that's um, great if that happens. But I mean, going into it, like the goal is to be able to take the stone out and be able to be like, Yay, high five. And then and then secondarily to make sure that things heal so that there's no complications afterwards. Yeah. I feel like we, you know, in terms of size, you always, oh, it's so big or this and that. But the small ones, like, you know, one to two millimeter, they're a pain and they're tricky and sometimes uh, they lead to more problems than you're hoping. Because I've had that happen where, you know, you're chasing a small stone, it's causing symptoms. You go to the OR, you do sondoscopy, you don't see anything. You feel like you're right as proximal as you physically can be. And then there's there, you've opened up a can of potential for strictures or, hey, we're still symptomatic. So it, those small ones are real. Yeah. I totally agree. The small ones are way harder than the big ones. Like I, I, like the biggest stone I ever removed was huge. I think I should do a picture. It was like it was a dinosaur stone. I was like, is this a dinosaur? It looked like a shark tooth. Fossil. Like it's like five <laughs> centimeters plus. It's like it was amazing. But that's that, ridiculous. Ash. <laughs> but you could like you could feel it. Like it was big. It was there. Like stones. Like the the hard part is usually like being able to like isolate it and find it and grab it. And so the smaller it is the more evasive it is. It is, yeah. Yeah, the more likelihood of, you know, potentially causing harm in your attempt to get it. Those are certainly the harder ones. It's like, I'm going to need you to just deal with this for about like 10 <laughs> more years so we can triple the size of this. And then that way. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into uh, post-op care. Do you do antibiotics? Or do you have like them doing mouthwashes? What do, what do you like them to do? When do you see them? Yeah, when I first started doing them, I was really crazy about like, you know, Paradex rinse and post-procedure antibiotics. And I've really moved away from that. I think, you know, it's it's one of those things like the stone is the pathology. And once you remove that 
you just let the body kind of like heal and get back to normal. So unless there was some like infection that was discovered after the stone was gone, it's like, oh, there is a lot of pus here. Or if it seems to be actively infected, then sure, I think antibiotics make sense. But I don't just routinely do antibiotics just because we did the procedure, um, because I don't really think it makes a difference, or at least I haven't seen that it makes any difference. And typically they feel so much better once the stone is gone. See, that's good to know because I am one of those automatic, okay, you know, I don't worry about salinitis. I did something, but that's good to know that you don't have to do it always. Yeah, I so. just tell them, I tell them to, um, to make sure and massage the gland, you know, and um, kind of encourage saliva to kind of flow out and through that new opening. If it's uncomfortable, if it has been recently infected, maybe they can put a little heat on it or something like that. Um, I don't give them any sort of strict diet restrictions, yada, yada. Like I, I let them, I basically say you can eat what you want to eat. However, you have an incision in the floor of your mouth. And so if you're eating something acidic or sour, it might burn because you know, it's just like when you have a cut in your mouth, that's going to might sting and burn. So you might try to stay away from that. And I do have them just rinse their mouth out with water for the first week after they eat with the idea being that just trying to kind of keep things clean. Uh, they can brush their teeth as long as they brush their teeth like a normal person. <laughs> <laughs> like how you, like we usually talk I'm like as long as you're like the toothbrush is on your teeth and not on the floor of your mouth where, you, where your sutures are like I think it's you're gonna be fine so I've never had anybody like disrupt anything with you know brushing their teeth or doing kind of just normal oral care what else you know I tell them that they have sutures in the floor of their mouth and that they will you know dissolve on their own um, and to just kind of try to leave them alone um, and that when they when they dissolve away, you know, they might um, it might break off. You might see, you know, the knot or part of the suture in your mouth and you can just spit that out. That's OK. Do you see them back? Yeah, I usually like to see them back like in, you know, a week or two. I like to just kind of see how things are healing up and uh, make sure that it's not closing off and stenosing. Um, and it usually heals pretty quickly and pretty nice. Um, it's amazing like how you never well were there. the mouth. Yeah, it's it's so amazing how well the mouth can heal. And and as far as like pain, usually Tylenol Motrin is fine. Again, most of them were having pain because of the obstruction of the stone. And once that's gone, they feel so good and they're so happy that they can eat without having pain that. I mean, I hardly ever have those patients complain about pain from the procedure. Have you ever had any like persistent post-op swelling? Have you, do you ever have you ever had to do oral steroids for anything like that before? Or I would imagine that that should resolve. I mean, you know, a little bit to be to be expected, and then yeah, and I can't I can't think of a time when I've had any issues like that. Yeah, there might be a little bit of like bruising of the mucosa and things like that. So you know, I tell them if if you look underneath your tongue, if you look where the procedure was, it might look a little bruised or or swollen or different from the other side until things heal up. And then um, do you follow these patients long term? I mean, we stones can sometimes come back. Um, do you expect them to just kind of come back if the symptoms uh, represent themselves or are you, do you ever see them back in six months or is there a reason for it? I don't know. After I see them, you know, at that two week mark or so, I think if things are looking good, I kind of let them go. Um, and I tell them, you know, this this could happen again. You know where to find me. 
you know, if we need to address it, we will, but I don't make them like come back and see me on any sort of regular basis. No. Any other major like complications? We've talked about strictures. We talked about stones can come back. We talked about maybe not finding the stone. What else could not go wrong per se, but what else we need to think about being prepared for? Yeah. Again, like when anytime you're manipulating, you know, the duct, the punctum, there's the the risk of creating just like a, a complete stenosis um, of, of that duct. Um, it, the structures are really small. And, you know, once you open the duct, sometimes it can just, and, and like we said, if there's bleeding, sometimes it can all look the same. And so I would just make sure that your patients are aware of the possibility of things being worse, you know, like um, if I have a patient that's really not having symptoms and it's a small stone and I'm not super confident that we're going to be able to get it easily, then we just have that conversation and say like, hey, like we could make things worse if we, you know, go in there and incise the duct and try to sew it open like it could completely stenose off and you could have, you know, some infection related to that. Um, and that's really hard to treat. So I think patient selection is huge with, with this, whether you're doing it in the office or the OR or, you know, wherever your setting is, um, just making sure that you have the right procedure for the right patient and that um, they're aware of kind of those pot- potential complications of either, you know, stricture and stenosis and recurrence. And um, I think the other thing too is um, there are other conditions that can cause pain in that area. I did have a patient one time who had, the patient did have a stone and we were able to easily remove it in the clinic and the patient continued to have pain. And so even though there wasn't like another stone that we kind of presumed that there was some chronic saladenitis going on because it was still kind of in the same area and, you know, questionable, maybe a stone in the gland, but again, hard to see because of some artifact on the CT, but took the gland out um, and the patient just continued to have some pain. And then it ended up being, you know, like, like TMJ, like jaw, you know, like from, you know, clenching and grinding related to stress. And so I felt kind of silly for not like going into that, but we were so kind of focused on the stone and the patient, yeah. you know, felt confident, like it was like, oh, this is the same pain and it's there. And so, I don't know, I think maybe just making sure that the pain is from the stone, um, which sounds silly, but like, you know, I think we get excited. We're like, oh, there's a stone, like let's take out the stone. Um, and so um, just kind of having a clear idea of um, making sure that the pain is coming from where you think it is. Um, and typically patients who have salivary stones will have pain um, with eating. Like if it's truly causing an obstruction, they'll have pain every time they salivate. So when they're, you know, usually when they're about to eat. I think that's a great point because especially facial pain, neck pain, I think the history, like you said, the specific to stones and eating is probably very key and very important. Um, And I'm also glad we brought back the patient that has a stone, but maybe completely asymptomatic and watching them as well, because what we do, uh, especially, you know, interventions aren't without potential complications and risks. And that's always the worst, right? Is I think I can make this better, but then uh, somehow we're, we're not and we're worse. That's the worst feeling. 
to have. Yeah. And you feel terrible, you know, when a patient has a complication that is worse than their disease process was when they came to you. I mean, you know, we're talking about salivary stones, but that's with anything we do, right? Even the ear tube. The kid that maybe, do they really need ear tubes? Oh, they're always on antibiotics, are they? And now they have a big perf or now there's a clustiotoma. I mean, there's always some, right? Yeah, yeah, 100%. It's, you know, there's always something potentially. But anyway, so any final pearls, anything that I'm missing this was great and, and really comprehensive. We talked about it for way longer than I thought we were going to be. <laughs> I thought it was going to be really short, but I guess I have a lot to say about it. But these are so fun, though. Like, you know, yes, there's, you know, potential for complications, but these are like some of my happiest patients. And it is so rewarding to be able to have a patient like come into the office. And if you can just like fix it in the office and then they like walk out and they're like, all right. And you see them back and they're like, yeah, it's better. Like, you're, you're awesome. Thank you. And you're like, yeah, like it's just a, it's a win and it feels good. And then, you know, you, you never really see them again because I assume they're, they're good. off living their <laughs> best life and doing well. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's just, um, it's different than some of your other patients that, you know, you're managing long-term, um, and it, but it's, but it's nice and, and, um, and they can be really fun, especially when you're taking out like a big, you know, five short centimeter short dinosaur fossil. <laughs> I was like, we'll what to, are you sending me? <laughs> we'll have to put a, um, a, a uh, maybe that a, will be the picture yeah, on this. Yeah. Podcast. I was so proud of that one. That one was really fun. It'll to be do. a headshot of the stone, <laughs> the massive one from clinic. It was absurd, y'all. Oh my God. I was like, what is this? <laughs> like, but yeah, but like so fun. And so like they can, it's, you know, even, even like with this, you know, any size of them, you take them out and you're just like, all right, nice. Got it. And, they, and then patients generally get better. So the vast majority of patients do really well. And I think doing it in the office can be a nice thing to kind of add to your tool set and to be able to kind of um, offer that to patients so they don't have to go to the OR, BNPO, get there two hours early, get checked in, get in their gown, talk to, you know, talk to anesthesiologist and that. Get in, yeah, get the, in. Like, you know, and then you do the procedure and like, I don't know, 20 minutes and then it's like, been. so they've spent their whole day, you know, at the hospital, um, whereas y- y- they could potentially just come in to your clinic for an hour and be done with it. So think about it. And I think having, having loops is huge. I mean, I don't think I could do it without having loops. I think, you know, having you know, another set of hands, you know, being able to have an assistant there to kind of help you with suctioning or things like that, just setting yourself up for success, you know, start with the easier ones and then go from there. But I'm I'm happy to be a resource um, for people who are interested or want to know more. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ash. Um, thank you, Gopi. I love these. I love these. Um, <laughs> for our listeners, uh, you can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Apple, and Ghana. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore backtable ENT. We love feedback. Uh, reach out to us for topics, ideas, speakers, or if you ever want to come on the show. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore BacktableENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Karen Yen with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, 
and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor Spurgeon Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.